We saw this morning biblical reasons why we should not favor those who are materially wealthy in the church. Command is very clear. Partiality is not that which is to be practiced in the church of Christ. James gave us reasons. God always gives us reasons. Christianity is a reasonable faith. You can't understand it. That's why it is so detrimental to your life if you go merely on the function of your emotions. God does not ask us to bleed, to follow blind, ignorantly statements, but He gives us truth. He has given us a mind. It's part of the image that we bear of Him, that we can think, we can understand. We can come to that with clarity. And that's one of the great blessings of the Christian faith. And so we saw this morning how the James teaches that God chooses the poor, not exclusively. He also chooses those who are rich, but predominantly it is the poor whom God seeks out. And that the wealthy are those who oppress the church of Christ. In fact, they are those who blaspheme his name. And so why would we seek to honor the wealthy simply because they are wealthy, knowing that this is true of them? That leads naturally to a question. If God is principally focused on the poor, by that we mean not just the entirely destitute, because there are many poor materially in the world, a vast number. Should we then forget about those who are materially rich? Should we concentrate solely on those who are materially poor? If God has at the center of His focus and attention those who are materially poor, would it not do us well to seek to follow after and imitate that example of God? James addresses that. He speaks to that. And he does so by speaking of the law. If we want to look at what he has to say in verses 8 through 13 under three simple headings. First, the special law. Secondly, the whole law. And thirdly, the law of liberty. James addresses the issue of who we should seek out in terms of our witness and testimony as believers in Jesus Christ by drawing our attention to God's law. He says, verse 8, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. I've identified it as a special law for two reasons. First, he calls it a royal law. Now, there isn't a great deal of clarity as to what James actually means by the term royal. But there is a real way in which we say that it does receive a special imprimatur, if you will, from the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, for it is His law. We are His subjects. The law that we follow is not the laws of men. They have not been constituted or instituted by men but they are the law of the living God presented to us as heirs of the kingdom 
and therefore they should have an abiding interest for us. I am interested in the laws of the land that I now live in. When I lived in Scotland, I didn't have any interest in the laws of Canada. They had no bearing upon me at all. Occasionally you would hear something of what was happening in Canada because the Scottish government would be seeking to replicate or mimic some of the things that were being done here in Canada. But that was the extent of it. I had no real interest at all in the laws of Canada. But now that I'm here, I have a keen interest in the laws of this land. I want to know what the law teaches. And I seek to make myself informed of that, in respect of that. Why? Because it's where I live. And it makes absolute sense. And so why would we, who are heirs of the kingdom of God, why would we not have an interest in the law of God? Why would we not be interested in the royal law? Not to have an interest in the law would speak to us of gross negligence. It would make no sense. And secondly, the reason why it is special is because it carries, James says, the full weight of scriptural authority. If you really fulfill the law according to the scripture. So the law of God is that. It is the law of God, the creator of heaven and earth. And just as the laws of men change, and we have gone through a season where the laws have changed from one week to another, so the law of God does not change. That is the great contrast between God's law and the laws of men. And the reason why that is the case is because God knows all things and His law set in stone, as it were, literally, and given to the commandments of Moses. God knew exactly what He was dealing with when He was giving man those laws. Men don't know the situation they're in. That's why they have to change the law. And the laws of men are so variable according to how they find themselves. A hundred years ago, the law of this land would have said that a man sleeping together openly would have been a criminal offense. Today, even to think that is a breaking of the law. To advocate that that's wrong is a breaking of law. And so you ask yourself, why a hundred years ago was there a law that said it was a criminal offense for two men to engage in sexual intimacy? And today, it's almost a law to speak of that being wrong. Why is that what has changed? Because the populace has changed. The nation has descended further away from the things of God, further away from righteousness. And when a nation descends further away from righteousness, a a nation will make laws that are further away from the law of God. It's very simple. It's very clear. It doesn't take an insightful theologian to understand that. But God's law does not change. It is truth. And it will not change. The affairs and the ways of man have no bearing on the laws of God. And so the law that we have carries with it the full authority of the spoken word of God Himself. And that's really important. 
It's not only important as we engage with the world around us to have clarity on that and not to be tossed about as they are tossed about, but also because there are many in the church today who, based on an incorrect understanding of the writings of Paul in Romans chapter 6, believe that the law of God is no longer relevant or pertinent. Now think about that. Think about the fact that there are many Christians who actually believe that the law of God is no longer relevant to their lives. They take that which Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6, where he says, For sin will have no dominion over you, for since you are not under law but under grace. And incorrectly they imply that what Paul is saying is since we are now living in the dispensation of grace, as it were, that we are not subject to the laws of God. And think of all that flows from that, the damage that flows from that, the carnage that flows from that. Not only have there been thousands of articles and books written about that, but it affects real people's lives. This denial of the royal law of King Jesus, that law which is scriptural authority, is set aside for the predilections of men and women who say they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with all their heart, soul, and mind. They're trusting in the King who gave His life at Calvary for their eternal salvation, and yet they're not willing to subject themselves to the law that He has decreed for them. Set free to live for God's glory, they choose to live for their own pleasure. And there can be no other reason for it. There can be no other justification for it. And it's very, very serious. It's not a small thing. We need to be clear. When God delivered His people from slavery and bondage in Egypt, He brought them to Mount Sinai, something that He had clearly chosen to do before that day, because when he speaks with Moses in Exodus chapter 3, he says to Moses, verse 12, but I will be with you. Moses has, has responded to God's command that he is to go into Egypt and he is to be used of God to deliver his people out of Egypt. And Moses says, I'm not your man. I'm not capable. I can't speak. There are many reasons why I cannot do this. And God says to Moses, I will be with you and this will be a sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt you will serve the Lord on this mountain, Mount Horeb, where Moses was meeting God. And so God then, when he brought his own people out of Egypt, and he brought them through that journey with the cloud during the day and the pillar of fire at night, he brought them to Mount Sinai. And what did he do when he brought them to Mount Sinai? He gave them his law. And so the deliverance preceded the giving of the law. Grace came first. Redemption is the context in which the law is. The law is not a means to meriting or gaining salvation by keeping it. It is the keeping of the law. 
is a blessing to us. It is the fruit of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Nothing has changed. We who have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus have been set free to live our lives of liberty in the best way possible. Do you understand that? It's one of the gravest sadnesses of the church is that many Christians do not understand that they have been set free from the bondage of sin to live in the liberty of the light of God's Word. They still live with this idea that it is something of a duty, that it is something of a bondage to them to subject themselves to the truth of God's Word when nothing could be further from the truth. The whole reason we're delivered is to live our lives to the fullness of joy. The whole reason why we've been set free from the bondage of sin, which would deny God and hold us within a framework of living that would reject the things of God, is that we might live for the glory of God and be who we are as image bearers of God. And so it's incredible to think that there will be those who say, I've been set free from the bondage of sin, but I will not subject myself to the privilege of living under the law of God. Surely that's the exciting thing for the Christian. That's the most exciting thing in my life. That I no longer have to wage my life in the ways of that have been rejecting God, but I can now live in a way that is manifestly experiencing the reality of that which God created me for. Born as I was, dead in the trespasses and sins of Adam, born as a rejecter of God, set free, given the liberty of Jesus Christ, I am now free to live not as I please or as I want, but I am free to live as God would have me to live because that's how He made man in the beginning. He made man as image bearers of God to be free and to know Him and to love Him. And who knows best for our lives? Do you know best for your life? Well, I'm certainly not going to put up my hand and say that I know best for my life because I can think of many choices that I've made in my life, some of them serious that haven't been good. And the freedom that I own today is a freedom to cherish the law of God. The freedom that I own is to delight in the law of God. The freedom I own is to be a believer in Jesus Christ and to walk in the commands of God. And that's a wonderful thing. It's a glorious thing. The Ten Commandments are not binding responsibilities to break our joy. The Ten Commandments are statements of God's law that we might delight in the freedom that we have. You shall not commit adultery. Why? Because committing adultery brings great heartache. It brings great trial and difficulty. It breaks the man who commits the adultery or the woman who commits the adultery. It breaks the heart of their husband. It breaks the heart of their wife. It breaks the heart of the one that they've committed adultery with. Yes. Yes, it's a wonderful thing to chase after. Something you cannot chase after. The excitement is great. Oh, it's wonderful. Until you've tasted of it. And then it's heartbreaking. And so God says to us, you will not do this. Because you will not have your heart broken. You will not be teased. You will not be taunted by that which will destroy you. Which will break your heart 
and will break the hearts of others. I say, the man that does it, the woman that does it, the husband or the wife, the wife or the husband of the other party. I forget the children. I forget the parents. I forget the other relatives. I forget those who are endangered by the whole single encounter. And God says, I'm cutting through all that. I'm setting you free from all that trial. I'm setting you free from all that burden. You will not commit adultery. You will stay in the relationship you are in, and you will love the one that you have set your heart on. Is that not a wonderful thing? Is that not a glorious thing? And yet the world will tell us that we're stupid, naive prudes, that we know nothing as they break their hearts, as they drink themselves into the ground or abuse themselves with other substances, as they lie in bed crying at night, wishing they could turn back the clock. Oh, they wish they would turn back the clock, all right. But dare we herald the truth of God's Word, even though their hearts are breaking and they're crying uncontrollably, dare we herald the Word of God in their hearing. key to fulfilling the keeping of this special and royal law, James tells us, requires two things. First, that we understand that we have freedom in Christ to live for Christ and not for our self-gratification, that which I've just explained. And secondly, he says, we need to get to grips with what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. For he says, when you love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. And so it's necessary for us to understand what does James mean when he uses the words that you're to love your neighbor as yourself? Well, how do we love ourselves? Well, the first thing we do when we love ourselves is we have a concern for ourselves. That which happens in our lives draws our attention and it engenders our concern. If there's something in your life that is of deeply disturbing nature, you will not be a disinterested observer of it. You will not sit on the sidelines. It will, it will concern you. It will keep you awake at night. It will occupy your thoughts. It will gain your attention. The initial concern will lead to us thinking about the situation we're in. In fact, it may occupy much of our time, and urgently so. And that then will lead to a desire to care for that which needs to be done to address that situation. So not only does it get our concern, not only does it only hold our attention, it then leads us to want to actually do something about that. That's what it means to love ourselves as our neighbors. It means that we're to be concerned for others, not just in a light-hearted or a frivolous way, but a serious way. We're to be genuinely concerned. Genuinely concerned. And that is to take our attention. We are to pay attentiveness to the needs of our neighbor. 
That's so far off the pages. You hear that and it goes in one ear and out the other. But yet that's the command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if we have concern for ourselves and we take attention to the details in our own lives and we seek to apply ourselves to addressing those details, then if we're going to love our neighbors as ourselves, we have to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And if that means that we're to show them concern, if that means that we're to show them attention, and that means that we're to show them care, then that's what that means because God says, then we do well. What is the opposite of such love? He says, verse 9, But if you show partiality, then you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. So what is the opposite of loving your neighbor as yourself? It is a showing of partiality. How is the showing of partiality the opposite of showing love to your neighbor? Well, partiality has no concern. For it doesn't invest the time to seek out or to look for those in need. Yes, partiality looks all right, but it looks solely to those who don't have a need. Partiality doesn't look to discern is there a need. Partiality looks only at those who don't have a need. Partiality gives no attention to obtaining the details of those who are in need because it doesn't need to give attention to those who have need. It seeks to give attention to the person who doesn't have need and seeks to bolster their self-confidence. That's what partiality does. When there's a choosing of someone or, or favoring someone because of who they are materially or some other way, that does not show the love that is needed for our neighbor. It's avoiding the requirement of love. It's rejecting the necessity for love. It's saying that I don't need to show love to my neighbor. It's saying that I can circumvent that because I will not identify those who have need. I will not identify and give attention to those of need. I will not identify and give attention and care for those in need. I will identify those who don't have any need. I will identify those who can care for themselves. I will identify those people and I will elevate those people. I will identify them because I don't have to give them any care. I don't have to get involved. I don't have to get my hands dirty. I'll just pick people who have got it sorted. I'll pick people who can, I can speak with and I can build their ego. I'll pick people who being in their presence will reflect well on me. I'm not going to look for individuals who are shabbily dressed, whose behavior patterns might not be all that appropriate, why would I bother? Why would I bother loving them in the same way that I love myself? Much easier just to avoid the whole thing entirely. Much better to build up those who don't need any care much better to give attention to those who don't require any love. Much better to find out information about their life, knowing that it's not going to make any demands of me at all, and 
all I am doing is bolstering their thoughts of themselves. That's why James says, to fulfill the royal law, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, but the showing of partiality, the lack of love for our neighbor, the favoring of others who have no need of care or provision, we are committing sin and we are convicted by the law as a transgressor. And I wonder if we were to really examine many of our friendships. How often are we marked in our friendships with loving our neighbor as ourselves? Or how often are we marked in our friendships by simply showing a form of partiality that demands nothing of us at all, requires nothing of us? This is a special law because it is royal and because it comes from the lips of God. The next two points are briefer. He speaks of the whole law. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law, verse 10, but feels in one part has become guilty of all of it. For he who has said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. You and I cannot pick and choose what parts of the law we find acceptable and the parts that we want to obey and those that we don't find acceptable and those that we want to avoid. And the reason why we can't pick and choose whether or not we're going to love our neighbor or not or whether we're going to engage simply in showing partiality is because the law is an entirety in itself. The reason why failing to keep one part of the law means that there is a fear to keep all the law is because God, the lawgiver, is indivisible in his own being and character. The reason why you and I cannot pick and choose which laws we find acceptable and which laws we do not is because the lawgiver God cannot in his character be divided into pieces. That's the reason why the whole law flows from the lips of the holy God who is one and it is not divisible based upon our personal preference because it is the whole law of God given to us who have been set free from the bondage of sin to observe and practice as holy and blameless in his sight. God's character is not formed of many parts. God's character is a whole. The whole law of God is a whole. You would think that the, the fact that it is God's law and not God's laws would speak to the point. You would think that the law of God is singular would communicate to those who believe today that you can pick and choose that they're doing the wrong thing. As James says, you can't say, that for he who said, do not commit a murder, also said, do not commit adultery, said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgression of the law. And likewise, 
if you commit adultery and you do not murder, then you become a transgressor of the law. It's not just that you have broken one of God's commands. Serious and heinous as that is. So James's point is that you may be thinking, well, the committing of murder is really bad. The committing of adultery is really something you would never do. But are you committing the sin of partiality? Because if you're committing the sin of partiality, then you're not loving your neighbor as yourself, and therefore you're breaking the commands of God. And if you're breaking one of the commands of God, you're breaking the whole law of God. We cannot sequence it up. We cannot break it into sections and say, this aspect of the law, this we will do, but this we will not. Now, of course, we don't do that in our minds and our hearts. But this calls us to really think. It calls us to think. Because as I was preaching on the keeping of the law of God in respect of committing adultery, I'm sure that none of you would have said, you're wrong. It's okay to commit adultery, even though it breaks the hearts of all involved. I'm sure that there's nobody in this building this evening who would have said that to me. And yet, is it true that possibly some of us have a capacity for favoritism and partiality and not loving our neighbor as ourselves? And whilst we would come down hard on someone who commits adultery, yet we in our own hearts are willing to tolerate our own capacity to be partial in our attitude to others and fail to fulfill the command of God to love our neighbors as ourselves. We don't jump up and down and say, well, that's a really bad sin, that one, and you really need to be dealt with if you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. We can find caveats, we can find excuses, we can find reasons. But Jim says there are no caveats, there are no excuses, there are no reasons. Because it's one law, because there's one lawgiver. And if you break one part of the law, you're breaking the entirety of the law. You're not just breaking point 32a of the law. You're breaking the full gamut of all of God's law. It's the whole law. So let's be clear. Let's be clear. We need to take great care. When we're commanded not to show partiality, that this is not just a wee thing. That we're commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves this is not an incidental, inconsequential thing. This is something of real magnitude. The law of liberty is the final thing he addresses. He says in verse 12, So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. How can we keep the law of liberty? How can we keep the law of God? We know that we all feel in it. So how can we pursue after this with a, a heart that is not crushed this evening? Well, we can do so because it is the law of liberty. 
It is the law of liberty. We are image bearers of God. We have been set free from the bondage of sin. And all that sin does. We have been given a regenerate heart and renewed mind. And a Godward will in our lives. And we have to see this law in terms of the liberty that it affords us. We've got to turn the observance of the law of God. From being something that is perceived as a duty. Into something that is understood as giving us the freedom that was stolen for us in the Garden of Eden. We have got to move away from the form of instruction that would have us to lead to that pattern of thought which would say that if I do this, there's going to be constraints in my life. If I do this, it's going to affect my emotional choices in life. If I do this, it's going to restrict what I think is the right thing to do. Such thinking is actually waging war against ourselves. Such thinking is denying the freedom and the liberty we have in Jesus Christ. Such thinking is detrimental to our growth in grace. When we are confronted with an issue that God clearly speaks to and commands in his word either to do or not to do. And we seek to put that in a place where it is no longer the law of liberty that's taking us as image bearers to that place where Adam was in the Garden of Eden, where we are fulfilling our lives to the greatest of our joy, but rather we are holding on to and are constrained by patterns of thought that are sinful and we will say, well, there are things that we will not do, obviously, because they wouldn't be appropriate to do. But if we begin to continue to, or if we continue to hold to certain patterns of thought that see the law of God as a duty and not as the liberty that it is, then it is to our detriment. And we must not allow each other to hold those positions. We must not allow each other to hold those positions. We must love not only our neighbor, but our brother and sister in Christ enough to say to them, your behavior here is arising out of a pattern of thinking that is unbiblical. You're viewing the law as a measure of constraint on your personal freedom to do what you want. When the law of God is given to you, you having received grace, you having been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, this law is given to you that in your exercising of it, you might experience, yes, something at the moment that you find contrary to your emotional desire, something you think at the moment that is detrimental to you, but in reality, if you observe and practice this, what God commands, it is for your good. And so if we sympathize with the breaking of God's law, and if we give passes to people on breaking God's law, if we say it's okay for you to break the law of God because I know you're stretching with this or wrestling with this emotionally, we are not helping each other. We are not giving each other the opportunity to experience the liberty that God has purchased for us in Jesus Christ. We're saying to each other, I love you, but I love you only as far as your emotional attachment to the law of God as you understand it will let you go. 
And we need to break with the old emotional attachments. We need to break with those old traditions. We need to break with those old patterns of behavior, those sinful ways handed down to us by our forefathers would say to us, this is the way to go. We've got to say, no, this is not the way to go. There's a new way. It's the law of liberty. And as we wrestle with that, as we do, and as we struggle with that, as we do, you've got to remember what James says in James chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 and 13, that there is the mercy of God freely offered to us if we will pursue after that which is right. Because God knows us and He knows our struggles and He knows our wrestles. He's not ignorant of them. He's not disinterested in them. He sees us better than we see ourselves. And so we can come to God and say, God, I find this difficult, but I'm going to do it. I don't see how it is going to be to my enjoyment. I don't see how it's going to be to my betterment. You have said that it is, but I see that if I relinquish this, then this is going to be difficult for me. And I'm throwing myself on your mercy. Help me, God. When is the last time you prayed to God for help? To break a pattern of thought or to break a pattern of doing that is inconsistent with His Word, that is outside the bonds of His commandments. You've tried and you've failed and you've said, oh, I just can't do, give up on this. This is part of who I am. This is my personality. This is what our family has always done. Would it not be better for us to get down on our knees and say, God, help me. Your law is special because it comes from your own lips. And I have been purchased from the breaking of it by the blood of your Son. And I know I must keep it all, not just parts of it. And I want to keep it because it's the law not of bondage, but of liberty. Freedom to be the person that you created in Adam. Freedom to submit to your will. Help me, God, to be such a person who will own this law and do so not with a, an arrogant umbrage against it, but with a willing submission to it. How our lives would be transformed if we understood the true nature of God's law and understood what is provided for it, for us in it. What is provided for us in it. Surely it is one of the gravest and most hurtful things in the church today that the enemy has blinded the eyes of so many to see the law as their enemy. To see the law as constraining them into a difficult pattern of thinking and walking and believing. Jesus set me free to be the person that I am. But I'm not going to be the person that I am. I'm going to be the person that I was, just with a different belief structure. And I'm not going to be that person that I can be because the law of God would constrain me, would constrain me, how sad it is that even godly men and women 
can think such things and speak such things that that which is to give them freedom, that which is to give them liberty, that which is to give them joy, they are framed in their mind as that which would constrain them. Let us seek the Lord's help on these things. Let's pray.